Ahoy, hoy, lady. How you doing? Ahoy, matey. I love it. <laughs> I'm fucking great, but we need to talk about the Nutcracker show you went to because I haven't asked you about it and I've been dying to hear everything. Okay. So last week was a very live show heavy week for me. I saw four live shows. <gasps> I love this about you. <laughs> Girl, I fucking live in New York City. I might as well, right? Yeah. It's part of why it's so expensive to live here. For real. So as as we discussed at length, we saw Company XIV's Cocktail Magique, which was fucking phenomenal. Then two days later, I saw Phantom of the Opera because it's closing in a couple months. And I love that show so much. It was the first show I ever saw at five. And it's still great. You know, I, as I was watching it, I hadn't seen it in a very long time. And the last time I saw it was under very odd circumstances. And it wasn't the person I went with didn't make it a pleasant experience. But Ew. watching the show, I know, right? God. Watching the show, my ex-boyfriend from many years ago used to shit on Phantom of the Opera. He was like, that show sucks. It's all tech. Like, I watched it without tech and the show sucks. And I was like, watching, I'm like, no, you're just objectively wrong. The show is great. It's beautiful. The music is beautiful. Like everything is beautiful. And I should have broken up with you the second you said that because you were just subjectively wrong. Yeah. Deal breaker. Absolutely deal breaker. And of course, <laughs> yesterday I get an email from LinkedIn being like, hey, do you know this asshole? And I was like, ew, I do. I do not want to connect though. <laughs> but I don't want to. So prefer to not. Thank you. Yeah, you know how I feel about musicals, and I actually do enjoy Phantom of the Opera. Like, look, see, exactly because it, it's so beautiful. It's not my favorite, but it's really good. It's objectively good. I will, I will say that it's objectively good. Yeah, it's great. Don't look. The movie sucks, but you know what can you do? I love Gerard Butler though. So, like, was I into it? Yes, and Emmy Rossum. So sure, and I respect that. I respect that. So and then on Friday, I was like, okay, if I can get like a standing room ticket, because Company XIV's Nutcracker Rouge was closing this past weekend. And the only day I had available was Friday. And I was like, okay, if I if I can get like a standing room ticket for not a bazillion dollars, then fuck it, I'll go. And she did. I did. And I was so jealous, but I was so happy for you. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to live vicariously through you. Tell me everything. It was great. It Obviously, it's wildly different from Cocktail Magique. Because since the Nutcracker is a, a ballet, it's more of that ilk. So it's more of a dance show. I love a burlesque ballet combination, though. That's a wonderful mashup. Yes. It's a very much that. Very sexy. Like, everyone is impossibly beautiful. And, like, when you walk in, because it's in a different theater, obviously. Or maybe not. But it's in a different theater. And... You walk in and I found out, I realized after the fact, rather, that the people who take you to your seats are the performers in the show, <gasps> which I didn't realize. Oh my God, I love that. And every single person, man, woman, in between, when you see them, is wearing a bejeweled corset, a bejeweled thong, high heels, and like a fur coat. <gasps> Hello. Have we died and gone to heaven? I mean, basically, I was full on obsessed. And just because, and there's uh, two intermissions, the show's about not three hours, it's about like 2.45, maybe three hours long, um, but it flies by. And because the theater god smiled on me after the first intermission, I guess the company manager was like, um, we have a, a seat that's 
way more expensive than what you paid. Would you like to move to that seat instead? And I was like, yeah, I would. Thank you. So I got, and I was like, well, what do you think? I was like, do you think, is it a better vantage point from there? She's like, yeah, it totally is. Uh, it was so great. It was just great. And it's, it's a really great night out. It's something that's very different and it's very sexy, especially for like a date night. I cannot say any more wonderful things about company XIV. I know they usually tend to do a seven deadly sins show over the summer. So cancel that shit in. That's fucking happening. Keep an eye on that. I'm in. Absolutely. No hesitation. No questions asked. I'm in. Yes. After Cocktail Magique, I'm sold on literally anything they do. It was so amazing. I'm still not over it. No, never. I'm never going to be over it. I'm already like trying to figure out when I can go back <laughs> to Cocktail Magique. How do I squeeze this in? Yeah. Who can I take? Exactly. In, in my impossibly busy schedule. Uh, and then I finally got to see Titanic. Oh, shit. Amy, do you know anything about this? I don't, but I feel like I've definitely heard you mention wanting to go see this. Amy. This was easily top 10 most insane things I've ever seen in my life in the best way possible. I'm sorry, what? I mean, we just saw some pretty crazy shit. So I'm like, I'm taking this seriously. It's insane in a completely different way. Okay. And the entire time I was thinking of you and Johnny and being like, okay, I I know that this is technically a musical, but I think that they would really be into this. I love that. Thank you for thinking of me. That warmed the cockles of my heart. Obviously, always. So it is... It is a retelling of James Cameron's Titanic. Yes. I remember you telling me this. By the iceberg, right? No, no, no. It's told by Celine Dion. Oh. Who alleges that she was there on the Titanic and witnessed the whole thing. And it is told through the songs of Celine Dion. It is one of the most insane things I've ever seen in my life. It's insane. I love that. It's like top. I can't like. It's insane. The woman who plays Celine Dion, give her all of the awards. Oh, my God. Like, I cried, laughed for like 70% of the show. It's insane. This sounds right up my alley. I love that. It Yes. yes. Also, am I laughing so hard at myself for thinking that the iceberg was a character? Yes. I'm aware of how ridiculous of an answer that was. I stand by it. I stand by it. It is one, though. gonna say i feel like this was mentioned to me at some point i i seem so odd that i would make this up i'm ridiculous but i'm usually not this ridiculous it was insane and in the most delightful way possible oh my god okay i might have to look into this for us then i think you absolutely you absolutely need to go i really can't explain it any other way than it's insane <laughs> because it is 90 minutes, no intermission, the way God intended. Yes. You're going to know all of the songs because they're all Celine Dion songs. Yes. Like at, at the end of it, you're like, I kind of don't understand what I just watched, but in the best way possible. <laughs> That's kind of my favorite. I'm not going to lie. That's how I felt uh, yes. about Crimes of the Future, where I was like, this is really weird and I don't understand it, but it was so hilarious. And there were so many like great, ridiculous moments to make fun of that I just, I was here for it. And it's obviously going off of the expectation that you are very familiar with the James Cameron film. As everyone should be like, who hasn't fucking seen that? Right. That <laughs> I feel like that was most of the women our ages. Absolutely. Like, sexual awakening was like, oh my God. You know, he didn't really do it for me. Leo didn't do it for me in the movie. But he did for like everyone else in my grade, for sure. 
I was just very titillated by the whole thing. I just was like, I am the hello. Hi, sexy business. Yeah. I think that was the first time I was allowed to see boobs in front of my parents. Was that? Yeah. Like that was okay. It was art, I guess. It should have kind of always been okay because boobs shouldn't really be that big of a deal, but I get it. Yeah. Boobs are boobs. They're not that serious. We're like repressed Cubans. So, you know, I was like, we're still kind of repressed Americans sometimes, honestly. Oh yeah, for sure. So, but I cannot recommend it enough. It, uh, got extended, I believe, through May. Okay. Because apparently this started out as a bunch of LA actors were just talking shit over at a diner, being like, we should do this and this and this. And I was like, okay, sure, Jan. And then they started doing it as like pop-ups like in LA. And then they did it, you know, for like a limited run for like a week at <laughs> this theater quote unquote, theaters being used very loosely here. It was like the basement of an abandoned Gristides in New York is what they used as their theater. And within the week, like Celine Dion's people were there to be like, we're obsessed. We're giving you the rights to fucking everything. And then the pandemic happened, but then it came back and then it was like a sold out run in the basement of a fucking abandoned Gristides. And then it moved now to uh, an off, like a legitimate off-Broadway theater with like actual sets and shit. It's, it's amazing and it's insane and I cannot recommend it enough. Shit. Okay. Yeah. Noted. Mm-hmm. It's going on the to-do list here. Yeah. So it was a very strong uh, theater week for me. I love that. I really felt bereft this week because we had so much fun last week and then I felt like I did nothing but work this week. <laughs> it happens. Yeah. I, I also rarely ever see this much theater in one week. If I'm, if I'm at the theater this often, it's usually because I'm in the show. Yeah. But if you can do it, fucking do it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's like, I have really nothing exciting to contribute to this. <laughs> <laughs> All of that was so impressive and so fancy. And I like just watched The Last of Us. That was, that was pretty much the highlight of my week. My social media has told me that lots of people cried at this week's episode. <gasps> it was very beautiful and very touching. This was the introduction of Murray Bartlett's character, who we know <gasps> as Armand from The White Lotus. I didn't know he's in it too. He is because he's wonderful. Of course he is. He's in everything fucking wonderful. And I feel like he's really having a having a moment here in the spotlight where everyone is realizing how fucking amazing he is. So they're just casting him in everything, which I'm here for. So yes, Murray Bartlett and Nick Offerman are the main focus of the episode and it's like their love story basically. And it's just, it's beautiful. It's really sweet. I love Nick Offerman so much. He is my dream man. Ah, Yes. Straight up. Yes. I Mm. love his relationship with his wife, Megan Mullally too. And the fact that they do these like crazy puzzles together. And then like, I believe they... They recreate them and take a picture of it, them like in front of the puzzle. Yes. <laughs> that is my couple goals for the record. If anyone was wondering, it's doing puzzles, ridiculous puzzles, and then posing like them. I don't know that that's really my couple goal. I'm kind of down with everything else. You're not the game puzzle person. Yeah, that's fine. No, definitely not. But many years ago, they were in an off-Broadway show, uh, and I live in, in Hell's Kitchen, which is like right by the theater district. So I'm like by all of the theaters, hence the name. 
And they were doing a show at an off-Broadway theater, like 10 blocks away from my apartment. And I remember one night I was grabbing dinner and I was having a conversation with, with someone. It was like 11 o'clock at night. And it was like a Tuesday or something. And I saw the two of them just stroll by, like <gasps> arm in arm and just chatting. Like, this is real. Like, this isn't for show. They just literally were just at 11 o'clock at night, just strolling to wherever they were going to go arm in arm. And I was like, oh. It's like enjoying each other's company. I love that. I just love that. Just goals. I love them so much. That makes me so happy. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. I needed to hear that. Thank you, Monique. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, if you haven't been watching The Last of Us, get on it. It's amazing. And this last episode was particularly beautiful. Yeah, I I haven't watched it yet, but I, I that is next on the list. Yay! Mm-hmm. I was like, and that's it. That's my big exciting week. I mean, I'm into it. I, a a low-key week is good, though. Yes, I need that. We had uh, repairs on the bathroom going on this week as well, so... Oh, that's Julie's, horrendous. I know. I thought of you the whole time because I was like, Monique would hate this. Yes. I hate that a lot. Yes. But they're done and I'm happy. Ugh, I don't want to worry about it anymore. Amazing. Yeah. So I guess that's it then, right? That's it. It's all our big excitement for the week. You were ready for some paranormal action over here? Girl, I'm fucking, I was born ready. Give me some spooky shit. <laughs> spooky shit. All right. So... Sources, Skeptoid.com, AllThat'sInteresting.com, CountryLiving.com, NashvilleScene.com, History.com, KentuckyNewEra.com, and Wikipedia. Side note, do you know I'm going to be in Nashville this week? I did not. So this is just a fun little psychic sister moment? I love that. Kind of, but not really, because this takes place in Kentucky. However, I included this article for pertinent reasons, which you will find out, realize after my story. Yes. That's a fun little surprise. I was like, I'm excited that you're going to Nashville though. Nashville, you're going to Dollywood too, right? No, not this time. Not this time. I wish. Uh, no, I'm going to go see Tuvlo down there. <gasps> Girl. Wait, did we t- I, I'm sure you told this to me and. I don't think so. Okay. I was like, maybe you told it to me at Cocktail Magique and I was just very drunk at the time and I did not remember. I don't think so. Okay. Amy and I very rarely speak in between recordings because we're so busy. <laughs> that sounded kind of fucked up, but it's true and not in a bad way. It's really true. It's just we're so busy with all the things that yeah. so it's it's like that it truly is the highlight of our weeks to be like, oh my god, I get to see you and talk to you. Plus I like catching up with you here. If I tell you everything that happened to me during the week, then I'm just like repeating myself when I tell you here. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I didn't tell you about Tovlo. Um, I love her. She's my birthday twin. Ah. Yeah, girl. Nice. Fuck yeah. Get it. And I see her every time she is touring. So I've seen her maybe like three times, three, four times. That's awesome. Yeah, she's great. She puts on a great show. She's really wonderful. I very much enjoy her music. I don't think I've seen her live. She's great. If she was at, what the fuck is that thing called? No, I don't think I've seen her live. Treat yourself. She's great. Okay. Noted. Completely completely irrelevant to anything that we were talking about. Sorry. <laughs> Off topic already. I love it. it. This does not take place in Nashville, for the record. It just, okay. It doesn't take place in Nashville, but I will be in Nashville. You will be in Nashville. No one gives a shit. Which I support. <laughs> I give a shit. You do. You do give a shit. Thank you, Mike. So, on the night of August 21st, 1955, around 11 p.m., 
11 people showed up at the Hopkinsville police station in southwestern Kentucky out of breath and in a state of panic. The women and children of the group were hysterical, and one of the men had a pulse of 140 beats per minute, according to police. Fuck. When they arrived, they said, quote, we need help. We've been fighting them for nearly four hours, end quote. When police asked them what they'd been fighting, they said, little silver men. (gasps) And as unbelievable as this sounded to the authorities, the police chief, Russell Greenwell, said, quote, these aren't the kind of people who normally run to the police for help. Mm. What they do is reach for their guns, end quote. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what they did. But even with a shotgun and a rifle to protect themselves, they had all arrived that night appearing genuinely terrified. Again, the, the fucking heart rate through the roof. Yes. Can't fake that. No. Then they told the police what happened. Elmer, also known as Lucky Sutton, and his wife Vera were visiting his mom, Glennie Langford, and his three younger half-siblings, who were 12, 10, and 7, respectively, at the farmhouse he'd grown up in. Their friends, Billy Ray and June Taylor, had joined them, as well as Lucky's brother, J.C., and sister-in-law, Arlene, and Arlene's brother, O.P. Baker. After a nice family dinner together, they all settled in for a game of cards. At about 7 p.m. that evening, Billy Ray went out to fetch some water from the well in the backyard when he saw a silvery object moving through the sky above him. Then he heard a hissing noise as it descended behind the farmhouse. When he came back inside, he told everyone what he'd seen and described it as, quote, real bright, with an exhaust all the colors of the rainbow, end quote. They assumed this was just some kind of weird joke since Billy Ray and Lucky were known to play pranks on each other. But... Billy Ray seemed genuinely bothered by what he'd seen. The others brushed it off and told him that it was probably just a meteor or shooting star. But when he asked his wife, June, if she believed him, she couldn't help but burst out laughing, and the others immediately joined her. Despite the ridicule, Billy Ray refused to let it go. And not long after, they heard all the dogs start barking outside. Billy Ray and Lucky went out to investigate, but didn't see anything, so after a few minutes, the two men began to head back in to resume their card game. But as they were making their way back to the house, they suddenly stopped. There, in the woods behind the house, was a glowing object. It began approaching them, and as it got closer, they could see that it was a short, human-like creature with large eyes. Both its arms were raised as if in surrender, and they said it seemed like it was floating rather than walking. Lucky cursed loudly, and the two men immediately ran inside and slammed the door behind them. They told the others that they had seen something out there, describing it as an otherworldly goblin. Although Glennie wasn't convinced, she'd lived on the property for decades, after all, and said she'd never experienced anything remotely strange, she didn't want the men's story of otherworldly goblins upsetting the children, so she decided to put them to bed. When she came back, she saw both men were standing guard at the doors— Lucky at the front with a shotgun, and Billy Ray in the back with the rifle. Lenny's first thought was that she couldn't believe how far they were willing to go to play a prank. But the men didn't seem to be joking. Determined to get to the bottom of it, she asked Billy Ray what this was all about. In response, Billy Ray said, quote, Miss Glenny, I hope you don't have to find out, end quote. Oh, shit. The men refused to back down from their posts at the door, so they all just sat there, silently waiting when suddenly a figure about three feet tall appeared in the doorway out of the darkness. Lenny was the first to see it and immediately screamed in terror. The others came running, and Billy Ray shot at the would-be intruder, piercing a hole in the screen door. 
He wasn't sure if he had managed to shoot it, so he went out on the porch to check. As he did, a clawed hand reached down from the roof, raising his hair. What the fuck? Girl, I don't even know what I would do in this situation because you were in the middle of fucking nowhere, basically. Trauma. What's the time period again on this? 1955. Oh, even worse. Yeah. We can't call anybody. We have no one to rely on but ourselves, basically. No cell phones. You're super fucked. No, you're so fucked. No. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Arlene saw and immediately yanked Billy right back inside the house. Lucky went outside and fired his gun at the roof. He said he managed to hit the creature, but it appeared uninjured and rolled off the roof, disappearing into the woods. They returned to the house, and not long after, a pair of glowing yellow eyes and a set of talons appeared at the living room window. JC shot at it through the glass with a shotgun, and Billy Ray followed it up. They said they watched as the creature flipped backwards and took off running. Lenny, who was a religious woman that attended church regularly, began to frantically pray, thinking the glowing-eyed creatures on her lawn must have been sent by the devil himself. The gunshots had obviously woken the children, and Lucky urged the women in the house to take them and hide in the back room. Everyone but Lenny obeyed. She just couldn't believe what she'd seen earlier and said she wanted a second look so she could be absolutely sure. Once the women and children were safe, Lucky and Billy Ray went out to check the front yard while JC, OP, and Glenny waited inside. Then one of the men outside yelled to look up in the maple tree. This time, everyone could clearly see one of the quote-unquote little men perched on a branch above them. The men shot at it, but instead of falling, they said the being seemed to just float off instead. Another appeared, coming around the corner of the old farmhouse, and when they fired at it, they said the noise they heard sounded like bullets hitting metal. Could you imagine any of this? No! No. Monique. Absolutely not. No. I can't even suggest to burn it all down now because then what the fuck are you going to do? You're just stuck outside. With these fucking things, yes. I genuinely would have no idea what to do. I would basically do what they were doing, which is just be shooting at them. I mean, yeah. (laughs) And like staying in the house and that's it. Because what the fuck? What are your other options? Yeah, literally. Despite having been shot, it too just floated away. While the creatures seemed unaffected by their bullets, they noticed that whenever a light came on, the beings backed away, as if the light seemed to hurt their large, yellow-peopled eyes. So they turned every single light in the house on and waited. This reminds me a little bit of the the werewolf. The paranormal witness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the lights. Yeah, it does. Mm. I started thinking that like in the middle of the story. I was like, that actually kind of rings a bell now that I'm thinking about it. It was eerily silent outside. As one of the children began to cry, they heard scratching coming from the roof. Lucky immediately ran outside, pointed his gun at the top of the house, and fired at the creature there. But again, it just floated down and scrambled out of sight behind the trees, seemingly unharmed by the bullets like all the others. It was obvious that whatever these creatures were, they weren't deterred by guns, and they realized they needed to get the fuck out of there. Yeah. They waited a few hours until the coast was clear, then ran to the trucks parked outside, jumping in as fast as they could and booking it to the police station. To the police, they described the creatures as having round, oversized heads with large pointed ears, muscular upper bodies, atrophied legs, and long arms with talons that nearly touched the ground. Jesus. They said everything about them seemed to shimmer and glow in the darkness. Their eyes seemed to glow with a yellowish light, and their bodies glinted like they were made of silver metal. 
Later reports stated that the family saw at least a dozen of these strange creatures, but from what I can tell, the family never claimed to have seen more than two or three at a time. Mm -hmm. After hearing their story, the police radioed Kentucky State Police, the Christian County Sheriff's Office, and the nearby Fort Campbell Army Base before heading out to the farm to investigate. Within an hour of leaving the police station, the family returned to the farm along with law enforcement officers from the city, county, and state police, as well as several military police from Fort Campbell. By the time they arrived, the local paper had already gotten word of the unbelievable story, and a staff photographer showed up at the house shortly after authorities. Including the family, there were about 25 people on the scene during the investigation. The authorities began searching the property with flashlights, but found no sign of the quote-unquote little men, only holes in the window screens and shotgun shell casings. Although the men had claimed that they had gone through four boxes of ammunition. Shit. Yeah which would have been about 200 bullets, the reports on the incident varied. Most stated that there were bullet casings scattered everywhere and that the windows were extensively damaged by the gunfire. However, another report stated that only a handful of casings were found, nothing remotely close to the 200 bullets that would have been there had they actually gone through four boxes of ammunition, and that there was only a single hole in one of the screens that was consistent with a 22 caliber bullet from a rifle. One of their neighbors, who lived about a quarter mile north of them, said he'd heard gunshots, but only four of them, and just figured they were dealing with a bobcat preying on their livestock. He also admitted to seeing lights in the woods behind the Sutton farm that night, but had just assumed that the family was out searching for one of their pigs that had gotten lost. One account states that one of the officers on site noticed something glowing in the woods, but when they went to investigate further, nothing was found and the glow had disappeared. So this was chalked up to foxfire, also known as fairy fire, which are the common names for the bioluminescent fungi found on decaying wood. Oh. Yes. Which is very interesting. The more you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually pretty cool. I was like, I looked up some pictures. I was like, it does glow like bright green. I could see how Mm -hmm. that would be sketchy. The ground beneath where Lucky claimed to have shot one of the creatures appeared to have been stained with something that gave off an iridescent sheen when viewed from an angle but no conclusion could be made as to what it was. And not all the reports even mention this. Right. With no real concrete physical evidence to back up their story, the officers decided to question the family members separately to see if there were any inconsistencies in their stories. But all of them gave the same description of the night's events. The authorities remained on site for more than two hours, but after their investigation turned up nothing useful, they left around 2.30 in the morning. But that was not the end of the night for the Sutton family. They tried to sleep, but were still shaken up by what they had seen. Then around 3.30 in the morning, Lenny woke up to the sight of one of the little men on the other side of her bedroom window. What the fuck? Girl, I can't. And, like, think about it. This is not a house that has air conditioning. So it's fucking August. It's hot. They only have the screens up. They don't have the windows. So... It's right fucking there. She said it had its hands on the screen, looking in. She called out to Lucky, who had been dozing on the couch in the living room, and he immediately rushed to the window and shot at it. Although they didn't see it after that, they said they could still hear the creatures scratching at the house and walking on the roof. That, okay. My parents' place is on the water in Miami, and as is the case when you're on the water is there's rats are a thing. Oh, yep. And whenever we've had like rat problems, you can hear them like in the walls or in the roof. And it's so 
unnerving and disgusting. It is. I've lived in a place like that and it's even knowing what it is, it's still terrifying and creepy. And it's so like, oh my God. I can't imagine seeing something weird and then hearing that shit in my fucking house. No, absolutely the fuck not. Exactly. I'd be like, what the fuck? I'd be like, no, 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 no. No. Again, you can't burn it down. What are you going to do? Fuck. You're literally outside with them. Yeah. Lucky and Billy Ray spent the next couple of hours watching guard with their guns and said the creatures left just before daybreak. When two officers returned the following morning, the neighbors told them that the Suttons and Taylors had packed up and left for Evansville after the creatures had returned. The officers, right? Yeah, I fucking would too. I mean, I get it. Like, I'm not doing this two nights in a row. Get the fuck out. GTFO. The officers searched for evidence of a saucer landing, footprints, blood trails, or scratch marks on the roof in the light of day but still found nothing. When the Suttons eventually returned to Hopkinsville, Bud Ledwith, a local radio station employee, interviewed the adult eyewitnesses and made drawings based on their accounts. He was reportedly impressed by how specific and consistent their descriptions were to one another. Radio stations and newspapers all over the country, including the New York Times, reported the incident and due to a misquote, their description of quote unquote, little gray men became little green men. Mm. And this incident is supposedly the origin of the popularization of the words little green men. Oh. As a reference to aliens. Yes. Prior to that, the term was limited to science fiction culture, in particular, the Mac Reynolds story, The Case of Little Green Men, which was published in 1951, four years before the Hopkinsville encounter. Not long after the Sutton story was published, Hundreds of curious sightseers descended on the farm, undeterred by the no trespassing signs. So many reporters and looky-loos came walking around the property and taking things, calling them souvenirs, that the family started charging admission. Uh, Fuck yeah. If you're going to do that shit, you might as well make money on it. Fuck you. I didn't ask you to be here. Right? That was my thought. Yeah. 50 cents for entering the grounds, a dollar for information, and $10 for taking pictures. Especially if you're stealing my shit. Yeah, fuck off. Yeah, fuck you. You're going to pay for it. Yep. But when people heard they were trying to profit from the story, Mm. skeptics immediately denounced them as fortune-seeking hoaxers and any remaining goodwill toward them vanished. Sure. Their neighbors grew cold and threatening and sick of being harassed and called liars. The Suttons left for good 10 days later. Now, I do feel the need to mention that Lucky, Billy Ray, and Billy Ray's wife were all carnival workers, Mm -hmm. which I feel like didn't really help their credibility. But sure, look, just trying to make a buck. It's fucking... If you're going to do this shit anyway, then I might as well make money on it. Yes. Yes. I totally get that. If you're fucking like trespassing on my shit, stealing my shit... Fine, then I'm going to charge you for it. Fuck you. Yeah. Bitch better have my money. Thank you. Absolutely. Riri got it right. Yes. But the fact that they were carnival workers kind of made it seem like they were doing this as... A gimmick or whatever. Yeah. A gimmick, yes. Like, they're performers. Of course they're doing this for money and just to make a dollar. Of course. Now, police chalked the whole incident up to them drinking too much moonshine and basically hallucinating everything. I'm so, okay. I've never had moonshine. Do you hallucinate on moonshine? No, right? You just get wasted. It's very strong. But basically, this was like a moonshine haze, hallucination, whatever. Like ugh, group hallucination. Yes. 
if you've hallucinated on moonshine, could you please uh, email us or DM us, please? I've, I've never heard of this. It is crazy, but I mean, I've like had a very mild hallucination just when I was very, very tired. So it wouldn't actually surprise me if in an altered state of mind, it would be easier to hallucinate. Sure. But then everyone's hallucinating. The same thing. Right? And there's like kids there. I don't think the kids had any moonshine. I don't think they're given 12-year-olds moonshine in 1955. Maybe. I mean, I think probably though. (laughs) (laughs) Shit was wild back then. So who knows? And their carnies, like probably. Kids have like a smoking habit and shit when they're 12 in the 1950s. That's true. That's very true. (laughs) That's just because they look so cool doing it, Monique, obviously. I know, man. Rebels without a cause. So despite this moonshine theory, authorities didn't find any alcohol on the premises that night. And most of them admitted that they didn't seem drunk. According to Glennie, that explanation was ridiculous since liquor was not allowed in the farmhouse. A local resident said, quote, we all laugh at that because she didn't allow alcohol or even cursing on her property. Oh, shit. They were a very quiet, trustworthy family, end quote, which Glennie, you and I are not going to get along. And when you've seen someone wrecked, like you, you can t- immediately. You know And you can fucking smell it. Like, yeah, fucking moonshine's like almost pure ethanol. Like, it's very strong. I think you would know if they were wasted. Yeah, that's definitely on the police report. Yeah. However, Arthur Kanzler, a sheriff from a nearby town who was at the Sutton Farmhouse on the night of the investigation, claimed that everyone was drunk and were apparently tossing a cat onto the screen door to scare the people inside. Quote, When I saw the Sutton's daughter reach up and pull that cat off the screen and the cat scream, I knew then that that was the Martian, end quote. To be fair, this was not reported until July 12th, 2003. Oh, get the fuck out of here. Almost 50 years after the incident. So do with that information what you will. And again, there were like half a dozen authorities, police from various departments on site that night and one person said this there's no record of anyone else coming forth being like no they were very obviously drunk surprisingly this was not the only animal-based explanation for the creatures they supposedly saw taking a page from the staircase skeptics believed owls were the most plausible culprits because the talons and the big eyes so many things yeah yeah yep But you think these people have not seen a fucking owl? How long have they been living there? Stop. Like, this is not New York City where they're like, what's an owl? Like, these people live in the fucking wilderness. They, like, basically grew up on this farm. They've lived there their whole fucking lives. Glennie is, like, 50 at this time. You're saying a woman who has grown up here and lived here for 50 years of her life doesn't know what owls look like? Like, full disclosure, was the first time I found out what an owl sounded like and that it screeched watching my cousin Vinny? Absolutely. Yeah. You know why? Because I grew up in Miami fucking beach and then I moved to New York City. <laughs> we don't have those there. Yes, this makes sense. Yeah. Like, but if I lived in the fucking country my whole fucking life, you're going to tell me I don't know what a fucking owl is? Yes. And like Lucky and Billy Ray are like hunters. Like they're experienced hunters because you kind of have to be when you grow up in a rural place like that. Yeah. So I think this is one of those things of them being super judgy because they're carnies. I kind of think so. As someone who, who worked for a, like a circusy thing, that's 
that's their term. They use they use that term with affection. That's not derogatory. Okay, good. Yeah. Because I like that, but I was like, I feel like you can't say that anymore. I don't know why, but that doesn't that doesn't seem right. They refer to themselves as such. I don't know if that's changed in the last 15 years. That was the last time I was in a that was the only time I was in a circus show, but that's what they refer to themselves as. But people do use it in a derogatory way. And I think that that, that this is, the, I think, a judgment of like, oh, these are just a bunch of carnies and they're fucking stupid and they don't know. But they know what a fucking owl looks like. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Monique. I knew you would say this and I love you for saying this. We're on the same page. I love you. Of course. The great horned owl, which is found in Kentucky, can get up to 35 inches tall. So just under three feet, that does kind of fit with their description, has glowing yellow eyes, talons, and could appear silver in the darkness. They also have long ear-like tufts, hence the name, are active at night, and can get very aggressive if they feel they need to defend their nests. They did say they saw a creature perched in the tree outside at one point and said it seemed to float away, which, like, to be fair, does sound like a bird. Well, this does sound very similar to what they saw, and owls do look weird as fuck when they walk. Mm-hmm. I truly don't believe that they wouldn't have recognized an owl. Yeah. Or would have gone so far as to describe it as a humanoid creature. No one has ever described an owl that way. No. They said it had a muscular body, and you can tell it's, it has wings. And feathers. Exactly. I don't understand how you could ever think it was arms. Right. It did occur to me, though, that there is that idea that, like, aliens imitate things you know. Mm-hmm. So, like, but they don't get it quite right. So, like, they imitate other humans to lull you into a false sense of security. So I do kind of think it's possible that they maybe tried to look like an owl. So they didn't seem so obvious, but. But they fucked it up. They fucked it up so bad. And everyone was like, um, that is 100% not an owl. That thing is weird as fuck. Let's shoot it. I'm actually really into that explanation. Thank you. And I love you for that. <laughs> so I hang out with you, Monique, because you're like, yeah, that's a great idea. I'm into that. Amy Traden, woman of science. If anyone ever thought that was a possibility, listening to this podcast, they'd be like, you are not a woman of science. You are woo-woo as fuck. Hey, you you got the degree. I don't. Ugh, that is just a piece of paper, Monique. That's the mean shit. I mean, yes. Yes, thank you. <laughs> it is. Keeping right on with the animal explanations, there was also a theory that Lucky and Billy Ray had brought home a monkey from the carnival and painted it silver to prank the family. Though... Why they would have taken it this far, I have no idea. Maybe they were planning on making money off the story, but considering the fact they pretty much immediately stopped charging people who showed up to the property, left town after only 10 days, and tried to like live quiet lives since then, makes this like kind of seem pretty unlikely. If anything, I think what they would have done, if that if we're going off of this theory. Then they they bring the monkey on the road with them. They charge, you know, being like, oh, this is the crazy shit we saw in our house. Blah, blah, blah. Like, like every sideshow did shit like that. Or they would like, yes, you know, fucking, they used to fucking like sew a fish in a fucking, the corpse of like the bottom of a fish and the like a gorilla together and then be like, look, it's a mermaid. Like, yes, they would do that kind of crazy shit. So I don't buy that at all. That doesn't make any sense. I don't either. 
I don't either. And especially like you're going to shoot at the monkey knowing that it's a prank. Like what if you hit the monkey and kill the monkey? Are they, you're going to, are the carnival boss people not going to be like, um, hey, remember that monkey we let you guys borrow? Uh, what happened to that? That's actually really expensive and we kind of need it back. Yeah. So this, no, I'm not buying it. And again, from their descriptions, like, I feel like you would know whether that was a monkey. They don't have talons. They don't have yellow eyes. But also, how is a monkey and an owl both in play? To be confused for the same thing. Yes. Yes. No. Like, those don't look anything alike. No. But somehow it's a possibility that either of those things happened instead of it being aliens. That's like fucking Scott Peterson being like, my wife was attacked. It might have been a monkey. It might have been an owl. You're like, <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? How could you not tell the difference between both of those things? Those are wildly different things. <laughs> it was an owl riding on the back of a monkey. That's what happened. It was just very confusing. It was like a Lisa Frank fucking <gasps> folder. I wish I got attacked by a Lisa Frank monster. If I'm going to get attacked by something, let it be that, please. I mean, isn't that all of us? Fuck. An adorable, like, rainbow leopard or something, please. Yeah. Lucky's daughter, Geraldine, who was eight when her father finally told her about what happened, said, quote, my daddy didn't like how people treated him once the story got out. People made fun of him. It was traumatizing, end quote. During the summer of 1969, Lucky brought Geraldine and her siblings back to his childhood home to show them where one of his life's pivotal moments had taken place. Long since abandoned, the property still held the well, plus a strange circular impression in the ground where Lucky thought the spacecraft must have landed that night. While the incident did eventually attract the attention of Project Blue Book, it seems as though its team never officially pursued the matter beyond just checking in with their Fort Campbell counterparts who had been at the scene the first night. Project Blue Book lists the case as a hoax, but provides no further comment. One of the most thorough investigations of the Kelly Hopkinsville incident, as it became known, was undertaken in 1956 by ufologist Isabel Davis. After her research, she concluded that none of the possible explanations a deliberate hoax, a publicity play, or group hallucinations made sense and said none of the witnesses had any history of making preposterous allegations. Her report was published several decades later by the Center for UFO Studies, a group founded by astronomer Dr. J. Allen Hynek, Project Blue Book's civilian investigator. Although, according to him, the case was, quote-unquote, preposterous, and offensive to common sense. Yikes, okay. Despite all the skepticism surrounding the case, at least one Kentucky police officer believed Taylor and Sutton's story. Although Sergeant Frank Dudas was not among the officers who visited the Sutton farmhouse, he and another officer had reported seeing three flying saucers the previous summer. He said, quote, I think the whole story is entirely plausible. I know I saw the saucers. If I saw them, the Kelly story could certainly be true, end quote. Geraldine also believes her father's story and said, quote, still to this day, the witnesses who are alive are afraid to talk, end quote. According to her, after the incident, Lenny, who had always lived in the country, was so shaken up by what she had seen that she sold the farmhouse and moved to an apartment in town. Geraldine said she felt safer around other people. Geraldine also said that that night had affected her uncle J.C. too. Quote, 
He couldn't hold down a job anymore. It psychologically messed with him, end quote. Now, in an article published in September 2022 in the Nashville scene, which is where our Nashville reference comes in, Betsy Phillips, who visited the Sutton farm with her parents for the article, proposed an interesting theory. While it's not mentioned in any of the other reports, the Sutton's farm is located right next to the train tracks. And on her trip, there was a train stopped on the tracks waiting for another freight train to go by. Her dad wondered if the family might have been pranked by bored railroad workers who were stuck waiting for another train like they saw. So she sent a copy of the sketch made from the description of the creatures the Suttons had given to Carter Newton, the archivist at the Tennessee Central Railroad Museum, and asked him if there was anything railroad-related that this could be. He responded immediately with an illuminated switch stand. Now, I'm going to send you a picture of this because it actually does kind of look like a crazy alien and what you would imagine that to look like. I sent it to you in chat. Yeah, I could see that. So it looks weird. I mean, the old-timey ones especially look kind of like what you would imagine like a D movie like alien would look like, I feel like. But it's not moving or flying or floating or whatever. Correct, Monique. And that thing looks heavy as fuck to have in a fucking tree. Thank you. So, as I would like to point out, one, it has two separate lights, one red and one green. It doesn't appear to have yellow lights at all, so that wouldn't explain the lights looking like yellow eyes. Two, yes, Monique, they're fucking stationary. You can't move them around, so no. And three, if it was just railroad workers playing a prank, you'd think they would have stopped immediately when the family started shooting at them. Once they shot at them, yeah. Yes. Yet this continued for hours and absolutely terrified the family. While the Hopkinsville case is often described as one of the best documented and most convincing UFO cases, the incident is still widely regarded as a hoax. But that hasn't stopped the town of Kelly from throwing an annual Little Green Men Days festival that draws a few thousand people to the small town every year. The incident is also known as the Hopkinsville Goblin case, and Steven Spielberg cited it as part of the inspiration behind E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Fuck yeah. Yeah. It's also supposedly inspired many other classic science fiction films, including Signs, Gremlins, Critters, and even Poltergeist. Oh. Which I was very surprised at. Huh. I guess it's all about a thing besieging a house and terrorizing a family. So I could see that. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Monique. Got you. We'll never know for certain what actually happened on the night of August 21st, 1955, whether it was cats, owls, monkeys, moonshine, or just a couple of railroad workers playing pranks. While the owl explanation is the leading theory among skeptics, it might be worth noting that the Sutton's farmhouse in Kelly falls within the 37th parallel, the so-called paranormal highway known for its unusually high number of UFO sightings. Whether you believe it was an elaborate hoax, an angry owl attack, or extraterrestrials, one thing is for sure. The family, who never wavered in their stories, even after years of ridicule, genuinely believed they had seen something otherworldly that night. And they were 
absolutely terrified by whatever it was. And that is the story of the Kelly Hopkinsville incident, also known as the Hopkinsville Goblin case. Um, That was crazy. Crazy. And I don't think you can scare fucking like country folk like that. Country folk and no offense, carnival workers. I feel like you got to have a fucking. They don't give a fuck. Yeah. They see some crazy shit on it on the daily and they're packing heat. So they're like, I will fucking blow your head off. No problem. Thank you. That's kind of where I stand on this. Everyone is really into blaming the owl. And I just, I just can't believe that somehow. I just really <laughs> The original can't. owl theory. <laughs> Aliens literally are more plausible to me than that these country folk who were born and raised in Kentucky don't recognize owls. Don't know what a fucking owl is or a monkey for that fucking matter. I cannot. That's outrageous. No. Thank you. I'd never heard of this before. That was crazy. Yeah. I weirdly kind of hadn't either, despite it like being inspiration for E.T. and Close Encounters. I, yeah, kind of, kind of flew under the radar for me. So I stumbled upon this and I was like, yeah, I'm into this. I was like, you had me at owls, honestly. I was like, Monique is going to have a field day with this. Let's do it. <laughs> also, I don't remember if I said Scott Peterson uh, when I was talking about it. If I did, I meant Michael Peterson because that's the whole staircase bullshit. I think you did. And I think I had a moment where I was like, my brain's like, Something's wrong here. Yeah. But because in the middle of it, I was like, I'm not going to interrupt her story for this nonsense. It has nothing to do with anything. There's too many Peterson murderers. There's too many Petersons who have murdered their wives, allegedly. Drew, Scott, Michael, what the fuck? No relation, except they're murderers. <laughs> Convicted. But like, so. relax. You're relax. really giving the Peterson name a bad name here. It's not great. Oh, no. God. No. All right. On that note, do you have some uh, some murdering for me? Some true crime? Girl, I, I got some, some true, true crime all the time. Yeah. So a little fun thing. Well, I already knew I was doing this story. And when I was looking it up, turns out there's an episode of True Nightmares, which stars friend of the pod, Todd Robbins. Yes! About this case. That's my favorite when I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, is there a creepy show I can watch about this too? Amazing. I love True Nightmares. It's not without its issues. Also, like the main, one of the top two being that they do, it's like a 42-minute episode, you know, because of commercials and whatever. And they do three stories. So really that means that they're dedicating about 10 minutes per story. So things get very oversimplified. Okay. And then they also whitewash a lot. But that being said, I still do love the show. And like Todd is just wonderful in it. So yeah, also another thing, I'm going to get all of the really awful details of this case right out the gate. And then we're not really going to talk about it again. Okay. So brace yourself. It's going to be kind of shitty the first couple paragraphs. And then we're not going to revisit that really uh, in detail again. So sources, The New Yorker, the YouTube channel Crime Zone, Wikipedia.com, Conchology.be, and of course, True Nightmares. On a cold day in December of 2000, three friends were fishing on the Oder. Oh, also, I'm doing that thing where I'm doing a story from another country, and I don't know how to pronounce anything, so 10,000 apologies. I'm trying really hard, but I'm going to fuck it up. So on a cold day in December of 2000, 
three friends were fishing on the Oder River in the southwest corner of Poland when one of them spotted something. At first, he thought it looked like a log, but as the men drew closer, he saw that it looked like there was hair. Then one of them poked the object with a rod to get a better idea of what it might be, and it turned out that it was a dead body. The fisherman called the police, who carefully removed the corpse from the water. The victim was a man, about six foot tall, 200 pounds, with long dark hair and blue eyes. He was found with a noose around his neck, and the same noose had been used to tie the man's hands behind his back, binding the man in a backwards cradle, meaning that the slightest movements would have just caused the noose to tighten even further around the victim's neck. His body was clothed in only a sweatshirt and underwear. His autopsy revealed that the victim had virtually no food in his intestines, indicating that he had been starved for several days before he was killed. And his body had several marks, which also indicated that he was likely tortured prior to his death. And in possibly the worst detail of all of it, the autopsy also revealed fluid in his lungs, meaning that he was possibly still alive when he was thrown in the river that way. Oh, and like your instinct is to... Uh huh. To like pull your hands. Oh my God, which is just choking you more. That that's so awful. That's really awful. It's so fucking awful. Okay, but we got all that out of the way. Those are the details. Okay. Band-aid ripped. Let's go. Yes. So who was this man? The description of the deceased seemed to match that of a 35-year-old businessman named Darius Yanishevsky, who had been reported missing by his wife nearly four weeks earlier. Darius had last been seen on November 13th, leaving the small advertising firm that he owned in downtown Vorklaw to meet a prospective client. After he left his office, he failed to answer the countless phone calls from his concerned wife. And when he didn't come home that night, she reported him missing the following day. The police launched a major investigation. Scuba divers searched the icy river and forensic specialists combed the forest for clues. Dozens of Darius's associates were questioned, Authorities delved into Darius's business records and his personal life, and everything was squeaky clean. The only thing they could find was that Darius had experienced some marital troubles. He and his wife, whom he had been married to for eight years, had been briefly separated, but had since reconciled and were even in the process of adopting a child when he went missing. Friends and family described Darius as a gentle man who, in his free time, was an amateur guitarist who composed music for his rock band. Darius had no debts, no criminal record, and no enemies. And police had no leads. And after six months, the case went cold, with the Polish press dubbing the murder, quote, the perfect crime, end quote. Oh, I hope it's not. Well, well, we'll get into it. Somebody needs to be caught, yes. Fast forward three years. Oh, Jesus. Girl, can you fucking imagine? They're like, we literally have fucking nothing. Damn. Dude. Just like shrug emoji. Basically. Fuck. Darius's case had been handed over to Detective Jacek Robleski's unit by the local police who had conducted the original investigation. The 38-year-old detective had joined the refashioned police force five years after the fall of communism in Poland. The deeply religious Catholic had a strong belief in good and evil, and believed that putting away the bad guys was his purpose in life. He was married with two children, and in the few hours he had free when he wasn't working or with his family, 
he spent studying criminal psychology at a local university. And fun fact about the detective, Jacek is the Polish version of Jack, and Wrobel means sparrow. So Wrobleski's name literally translates to Jack Sparrow. I'm dying. I mean, did his colleagues address him as such? Absolutely. Obsessed. Wait, this was not just like something you noticed. They actually actively yes. called him this. Yes. Yes. I'm so here for this. Granted, this is like, you know, 2003 at this point. Pirates of the Caribbean is like the biggest fucking movie in the world. It's true. Yeah. And they're like, yo, you're literally fucking Jack Sparrow. I love this. I mean, same. Wroblewski had heard about Darius's murder. I mean, everyone in Poland had, but he was unfamiliar with the details of the case. And as he reviewed the case file, he knew that in cold cases, the key to solving the crime was often an overlooked clue buried in the original file. Wroblewski knew the level of brutality indicated that the murder was deeply personal. The absence of clothing on the victim's battered body suggested that he had been stripped down in an attempt to humiliate him, since there had been no signs of sexual assault. Darius's wife also said that her husband always carried credit cards, but none of them had been used after the crime, another indication that the motive wasn't just a robbery gone wrong. At this time, Wrobletsky becomes full-on obsessed with this case and is determined to solve the coldest of cold cases— he read over the various witness statements given to the police in the days after Darius's disappearance. Darius's mother, who had worked as a bookkeeper in his advertising firm, told police that on the day her son disappeared, a man had called the office around 9.30 in the morning looking for him. The caller said that he needed three big signs, the third one as big as a billboard, made ASAP. But when she inquired further, the caller said he didn't want to talk to her about it and demanded to speak with Darius. She explained to the caller that Darius was out of the office, but she gave him her son's cell phone number so he could be reached, and the caller hung up. She later told authorities that the man had not identified himself, nor had she recognized his voice, although she said she thought that he sounded quote-unquote professional. She did note, however, that during the conversation, she heard noise in the background, like a dull roar. Later that day, when Darius showed up at the office— she asked him if the customer had called, and Darius replied that they had arranged to meet later that afternoon. According to the receptionist, who was the last known person to see Darius Yanishevsky alive, he left the office around 4 o'clock. She also noted that he left his car in the parking lot, which she found odd, because while he had often met clients outside of the office, he always took his car with him. The receptionist also reported that when Darius left the office, she had seen two men seemingly following him, though she couldn't describe them in any significant detail. They looked like guys. I don't know what you want from me. Girl. Well, also, it's that thing, like, it's things that, like, you think about after the fact. And you're I were like, I wasn't paying attention to what they looked like and what they were wearing. Like, I didn't think anything of it. Because you're like, I didn't think my boss was going to go fucking missing. <laughs> and I would have to be <laughs> held responsible for this fucking information. Yeah. I'm always very concerned that something will happen and then cops will call me up and be like, what did you do last Tuesday? I'll be like, I literally couldn't tell you. I don't fucking know because it was probably a day like every other fucking day. (laughs) (laughs) I need to get much better at establishing alibis because I'm going to get super fucked one day. I literally was just thinking, thank God I have Johnny in my life because otherwise I would just be at home all the time and I wouldn't have an alibi for anything. They'd be like, you were at (laughs) home alone. And I'm like, yeah, uh, yeah, all the time. That's my jam. Yeah, right. 
Upon checking phone records, investigators discovered that the call to Darius's office had come from the phone booth down the street, which explained the background noise his mother had reported hearing on the call. Records also indicated that less than a minute after the call had ended to the office, someone at the same public phone called Darius's cell phone. And while the calls were obviously suspicious, Detective Robleski could not be certain that the caller was the perpetrator. Anyone could have used the public payphone, so the lead was, again, more or less a dead end. During his investigation, Robleski realized that Darius's cell phone had never been found and decided to see if the phone could be traced regardless of how unlikely. I mean, at this point, he's grabbing onto literally anything he could in this case because, again, this is like the coldest of coldest cases. It's three fucking years and nothing. They haven't found anything. Now, important to note that Poland trailed behind other European countries in technological development. And the police service had minimal funding, so they were only just beginning to adopt more sophisticated methods of tracking cellular and computer communications. But the police department had recently hired a telecommunications specialist, so he reached out to see if Darius's cell phone could be tracked. They learned Darius's phone had not been used since his disappearance, but Roblewski knew that cell phones came with a serial number from the manufacturer, and he thought that while it was a long shot, that if he could get that serial number, maybe that could lead somewhere. So Roblewski contacted Darius's widow to see if maybe she still had the receipt for her husband's cell phone. And again, granted, this is three years after his murder, and who knows how long since he purchased the phone. Uh, I was going to say, I'm pretty sure everyone still has the stupid box their phone came in. <laughs> so I would like, that's not even that unlikely to me. I'd be like, yeah, I have the receipt right here. Like, I have all the, do you need the packaging? Like, I fucking got it. But I guess Darius is like everyone else because he's the type of guy to keep receipts. Yes. And she was able to provide the detective with the serial number for his cell phone. And they start running it through their system. And to their shock, they get a match. A cell phone with the same serial number had been sold on Allegro, an internet auction site, which is basically the Polish equivalent of eBay, four days after Darius Januszewski disappeared. The seller's username was Chris, C-H-R-I-S, the letter B, 7, who investigators learned was a 30-year-old Polish intellectual named Christian Bala. Now, Roblewski was skeptical that Bala had anything to do with Darius's death. He was like, okay, let's be real. There's no way someone who had orchestrated such a well-planned murder would have been dumb enough to sell the victim's cell phone a key piece of evidence on an internet auction site just days after the victim went missing. And not just that, to sell it under a username that is the anglicized version of his name, because again, we're in Poland. So Christian is spelled K-R-Y-S-T-I-A-N, and his username is Chris, C-H-R-I-S. Robleski realized that Bala could have simply gotten the phone from someone else or purchased it at a pawn shop or even found it on the street and thought he could sell it online for a quick buck. Not to mention that in the time since the murder, Bala had moved abroad, so he couldn't easily be reached. But seeing as how Bala was literally his only lead, the detective decided to look into his background anyway— And the people he interviewed described Bala's disposition as more akin to that of a professor than a hardened criminal. Vroplepsky also discovered that Bala had recently published a novel called Amok. So the detective grabbed a copy. Not that it was easy to find. The book was extremely obscure. Not many bookstores carried it, and the few that did kept it out of sight, hidden up on the top shelves. 
Amok is about one man's descent into a spree of absolute depravity, with graphic descriptions of the protagonist's escapades with drugs and women throughout the novel, with the main character finally murdering his girlfriend. The book is sadistic, pornographic, and just flat-out creepy. Mm -hmm. I'm on the edge of my seat right now, for the record. Girl, (gasps) you don't even fucking know (laughs) what's going to (laughs) happen. Don't fucking know. And I can't fucking wait. (laughs) I keep thinking of Basic Instinct, where basically it's like the novel, she wrote the novel, (laughs) and then murdered the guy the same way. The central theme of the book reflected Bala's personal particular brand of philosophy, where he reiterated over and over again in various ways that truth is an illusion and that he is above any sort of morality. Okay. No, I'm stopping you right there, dude. I mean... No. Just now. Like, a little bit of a spoiler, Bala is super high on his own supply. Yeah. Like, hardcore. It's a very audible eye roll situation. I'm going to go out on a limb too high. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Vroplevsky was shocked by the novel's contents. While it was clear to the detective that Bala wrote the book to be deliberately provocative, he felt that there was something deeper going on. And he started to catch onto some similarities between the book and his cold case. He noted that the novel's protagonist murders a female lover for no reason and conceals the act so well that he's never caught. But what really caught the detective's attention was the killer's method, a noose. Then there was the fact that the name of the narrator and the killer in Amok was named Chris, the English version of the author's first name. Bro, if you are going to actually murder somebody, do not publish a book laying it out and doing it exactly like that and using your real name, basically. Why are people so bad at this movie? Like, really? Girl. And and again, remember, his username on, like, Polish eBay was also Chris. As Verbleski continued to read, he saw the novel as a roadmap to murder and as a type of bizarre confession to the murder of Darius. Yeah. It's like his manifesto, basically. Fuck off. Girl. So let's get into uh, Christian Bala. Christian Bala was born in 1973 and was, by all accounts, a genius. He had been the equivalent of the valedictorian in his high school, and as an undergraduate at the University of Roclaw, he was considered one of the brightest philosophy students. The night before an exam, while other students were cramming, he often stayed out drinking and partying, only to show up for the exam the following morning, hungover and disheveled, but still scoring the highest grade in the class. He latched onto Friedrich Nietzsche's notorious assertion that, quote, there are no facts, only interpretations, end quote, which, sorry, I roll. Yes. And that, quote, truths are illusions, which we have forgotten are illusions, end quote. Again, I roll. Get the fuck out of here. It's funny because when you, when he was like, I'm above morality, I was like, oh, you're, so you're like a Superman. You're like Nietzsche's Superman, basically. The Ubermensch bullshit. Yes. That is literally my first fucking thought. And then I was like, don't say that. That's too weird and obscure. You're going to look like a fucking... No, it's not. It, this, no, th- at all. So it's very funny because one of my very good friends in high school used to date this guy and like they used to talk about philosophy and and she was so into it. And then... He was a total creep. They broke up and he, it wasn't even he was a total creep. He was just high on his own supply. And then we grew up and we're like, grow the fuck up. What the fuck are you talking about? There is objective truth. Get the (laughs) fuck out of here. What the fuck are you talking about? Get a job and shut the fuck up. So I love that. 
Sorry for like fucking with any philosophy. I think philosophy is great, but also like grow the fuck up. Yeah. And for Bala, such subversive ideas made sense after the fall of the Soviet empire, where language and facts had been widely manipulated to create a false sense of history, which coming from a family that escaped communism, I totally get this. You know, my mother had a child who was younger than her tell her that grapes didn't exist, that they were, uh, uh, what was, what was the exact quote? An imperialist lie made up by the Yankees. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Grapes didn't exist. Uh, grapes are real. They're delicious. Right. So, so I do, I understand this because when you are in a communist society, they literally just tell you that like up is down and down is, you know, and the sky is green. And, and if you say otherwise, you're being sent to the fucking firing squad. So from that aspect, I, I do understand that. Bala wrote a thesis on Richard Rorty, an American philosopher who famously declared, quote, the guise of convincing your peers is the very face of truth itself, end quote. So Bala started living his life by this philosophy. He began constructing myths about himself, like an adventure to Paris or a romance with a schoolmate. And he would try to convince his friends that they were true. A friend of Bala said that his rationale was, quote, if he told one person and that person then told someone else who told someone else, it became true. It existed in the language, end quote. Before long, friends had trouble distinguishing the real Christian from the one he had invented. Bala wanted to push the boundaries of language and human existence, that he wanted to break free from what he deemed to be the hypocritical and oppressive quote-unquote truths of Western society, including taboos on sex and drugs. He told friends that he hated quote-unquote conventions and was quote, capable of anything, end quote. And he insisted, quote, I will not live long, but I will live furiously, end quote. I roll, fuck you. Get the fuck out of here. Uh, this is so, like, I'm so nonconformist. Like, I'm... I'm so much smarter than all of you. Like, I'm so cool, and you guys are just uh, a part of the masses. Like, I'm so a part. I hate this. You're just sheep. Sheeple. Oh, God. I, like... Uh, but guess what? Despite all the bullshit around breaking the conventions of society, Bala fucking married his high school sweetheart, Stasia, in 1995. Way to be nonconformist, bro. Dude. I like cannot for one fucking second with this fucking clown. Oh my God. And I don't really know if this was an opposite to attract situation because Stasia and Christian could not have been more different. Stasia, who dropped out of high school and worked as a secretary, showed little interest in language or philosophy. Bala's mother even opposed the marriage, believing Stasia wasn't good enough for her son, which also fuck you. Stop. <laughs> But Bala insisted that he wanted to take care of Stasia, who had always loved him, and in 1997, their son was born. That year, Bala graduated from the university with the highest possible marks and enrolled in its PhD program in philosophy. Although he received a full academic scholarship, he struggled to support his family and soon left school to open a cleaning business. And as I was recently discussing, I'm pretty sure you were there for this conversation in regards to Elon Musk. Just because you're a genius at one thing doesn't mean you're a genius at everything. And I think that that's an issue that gifted people fall into. Yes. And while Bala may have been a brilliant philosophy student, he was not a good businessman. Whenever money came in, instead of investing it back into his business, he just blew it on God knows whatever the fuck. And by 2000, he had filed for bankruptcy. Not only that, he and Stasia had separated due to his constant infidelities. Bro, 
I cannot. High on his own supply. I know. All right. I know. Like, for a second, I thought it was cute. I was like, oh, it's like his high school sweetheart. It's like, then you're going to, like, fucking cheat on her left and right? No. You're trash. No. He's just, he is so high on his, like, he's so high on his own supply. Like, get the fuck out of here. He's pretentious as fuck. And, like, I cannot for a single solitary second. After the two separated, Bala left Poland, traveling to the United States and later Asia, where he taught English and scuba diving. Oh, shit. Psychic sisters. Red fucking flag. Dude. Red flag. Get out of there. No. What's hilarious is I knew that this was going to, I was going to do the story when you did your story last week, but I did not know about the scuba diving detail. Screaming. It's not relevant. It's just a detail. But it's just noteworthy for the psychic sister noteworthy. aspect. Yes. Exactly. Thank you. Exactly. I love you so much right now. I fucking love you, girl. It's like, it's bursting out of me. I mean, girl. It was around this time that he began working on a muck. He finished the novel at the end of 2002, and it was both a critical and commercial flop. The book only sold a couple thousand copies. I thought you were a genius, bro. You didn't write a fucking bestseller on your first time out? Oh, no. Wait. Wait for this fucking obnoxious <laughs> shit. Double birds. <laughs> Absolutely. And it was critically panned with one Polish newspaper describing it as vulgar and, quote, without literary merit, end quote. <gasps> burn, bitch! That is the most savage burn you can give an author ever. <laughs> Absolutely. Ever. Fuck. I love it. But ever high on his own supply, Bala was confident that it would eventually find its place among the great works of literature. Exactly. You can't see this, but Amy's doing the jerking off motion, which is correct. Yes. He said, quote, I'm truly convinced that one day my book will be appreciated. History teaches that some works of art have to wait ages before they are recognized. End quote. Barf, fuck you. High neuron supply. Get out of here. Over the next couple years, Detective Robletsky became obsessed with the novel, pulling examples from the novel to try to prove his theory, underlining various passages from Amok. Bala had given his protagonist a similar backstory. Both were bored Polish intellectuals who were separated from their wives due to their womanizing and repeated infidelity. Both had serious problems with alcohol and had run failed businesses. Bala even included anecdotes that appeared to be completely lifted from his own life, like the time he and a friend were arrested for stealing a statue of St. Anthony from a local Catholic church while on a drinking binge, which don't do that. Just don't. Yeah. Also, I love the irony that he has lied and made up all these stories in his real life. But in his book, we're going to just lay everything out exactly how it was. Yeah. I, I can, like, I <sighs> can not with this dude. This guy's ridiculous. Now, here's the thing. At first glance, very few details of Mary's murder in the novel resembled that of Darius's. For starters, the murder victim in the novel is a woman and the killer's longtime friend. And as far as anyone knew, Bala and Darius didn't even know each other. And while Mary had a noose around her neck, she gets stabbed with a Japanese knife, another detail that didn't match up with Darius's case. One detail that did appear in the book, however, made the detective's blood run cold. After Chris murdered Mary in the book, Chris talks about selling the murder weapon on an internet auction site. <gasps> Bro. Bruh. Bruh. Don't do that. Don't do that. I mean. Oh my God. But he for sure fucking did this. So tell me everything. Did they find the listing? <laughs> Girl. 
The same thing that was done with Jerry's phone after his murder, and most importantly, a detail about the case that the police had never made public. I love this so much. Okay, okay. Girl. Robleski was certain that this detail was too extraordinary to be a coincidence. Yeah. So the detective made copies of the novel and handed them out to members of his detective squad, assigning everyone a chapter to interpret to try to find clues, coded messages, and any other parallels with reality. I love it. He gave them a signed reading. He's like, go home, read your chapters. I want the essay on my desk tomorrow morning. They're like, you're like, it's going to be terrible. Which... Oh my God, in, in, the tr- in the True Nightmares episode, Todd's lines about the book are just pure savagery. Oh, of course. I would expect nothing less from him. He's wonderful. Absolutely. It w- there was a line of something to the effect of, you know, while reading the book, it was clear to the detectives two things. One, a Nobel Prize for literature was not in his future. <laughs> Burn! <laughs> Savage. I mean, it was amazing. See, but here's the thing. Roblevsky's higher-ups objected to this approach, stating that focusing on this work of fiction was pushing the investigation in a highly questionable direction. The police asked a criminal psychologist to analyze the character of Chris in order to gain insight into Bala, and the psychologist acknowledged the links between the two, such as the divorce and philosophical interests, but cautioned that such overlaps were, quote, common among novelists, end quote, as authors tend to pull from their own life experience for their work, and warned that, quote, basing an analysis of the author on his fictional character would be a gross violation, end quote. And here's the thing. Roblevsky knew that the details in the novel alone did not qualify as evidence. They had to be corroborated independently. And so far, the only piece of concrete evidence linking Bala to the victim was the cell phone. In February 2002, a little more than a year after Darius's murder, the Polish television program 997, which apparently 997 is Poland's 911, but the program, which is like America's Most Wanted, in that it talks about a case and it asks the public for help for any tips on solving crimes, aired a segment devoted to Darius Januszewski's murder. Afterward, the show posted on its website the latest news about the progress of the case and asked for tips. Roblevsky and his team analyzed the responses the show received over the years. Hundreds of people had visited the website, even from places as far away as Japan, South Korea, and the United States. Yet, the police didn't turn up a single fruitful lead. Then the detective and his telecommunications expert decided to go back to the internet auction site to see if Bala had sold or purchased any other items on the internet while logged on as Chris B7. And they got a hit. On October 17th, 2000, a month before Darius was kidnapped, Bala had clicked on the Allegro auction site for a police manual called Accidental, Suicidal, or Criminal Hanging. <laughs> Guys, I wish you could see Amy's faces throughout this whole story. It's wonderful. Oh my God. <laughs> I can't. I can't. Monique, why? Girl. Oh, Okay. It was a handbook about discerning the difference between accidental, self-inflicted, and criminal hangings. The instruction manual also described several ways a noose could be tied. Now, here's the thing. Important to note. While Bala never purchased the manual from this site, one, it's unclear whether he purchased it elsewhere. We don't know that. Two, for Roblevsky, this search further convinced him that this was evidence of premeditation. Yeah. 
No fucking shit. Yeah. <sighs> but again, girl, all of this is, you I know, know but- I know it's not all, it's not real evidence. It's right. not actually it's- concrete evidence. Like, it's so obvious to us that we're like, yeah, it's this fucking guy. Go arrest him. But they can't. I understand legally they cannot. But it's infuriating. I know. Because you're like, Ugh. you're like, dude, it's so fucking obvious. Ugh. Okay. Yeah. Literally, my, my next line is, but the detective knew that if he wanted to convict Bala for murder, he would need more than circumstantial evidence he had gathered. He would need a confession. In the fall of 2005, granted, this is five years after Darius was fucking murdered. Crazy. Roblevsky finally got a break. And he learned that for the first time in five years, Bala would be returning to Poland to visit his parents. <gasps> mm-hmm. Yay! Okay. And on the afternoon of September 5th, Bala was taken into custody. Now, important to note, there are two wildly different accounts as to how that went down. Roblevsky alleges that it was a standard apprehension that was carried out to the letter of the law. Bala, on the other hand, claimed that he was attacked and kidnapped in the middle of the street by a group of men in broad daylight. He claimed the men beat him, put a bag over his head, and drove him out to the middle of the woods and threatened to kill him numerous times before eventually taking him to the police station. Well, you're a fucking liar who likes to lie, so I don't believe anything you say, you asshole. Thank you, Amy. That's literally what I was just going to say. <laughs> Because I just wanted to remind everyone that Bala's whole bag was that the truth was an illusion. And if you convinced your peers that something had happened, then it might as well be true. Yeah. So. So fuck off. Nothing you say is credible. Basically. Yeah. Roblevsky questioned Bala, who pled ignorance. He didn't know who Darius Yanishevsky was. They had never met. And as for his book, he was an author. Was he actually being detained over a work of fiction? So here's the thing. In Poland... After a suspect is detained for 48 hours, the prosecutor in the case is required to present his evidence before the judge and charge the suspect. Otherwise, the police have to release him. And at that point, the case against Bala was almost entirely circumstantial. All Robletsky and the police had was the cell phone, which Bala could have obtained, as he claimed from a pawn shop, a police manual on hanging that Bala might not have even purchased and clues possibly embedded in a fictional novel. Fuck. Exactly. Roblevsky still didn't have a motive and he definitely didn't have a confession. So as a result, the authorities charged Bala with selling the stolen property, aka Darius's cell phone, and with paying a bribe in an unrelated business matter, which Roblevsky had uncovered during his course of the investigation. And Bala was free to go. While Roblevsky knew that neither charge would carry any jail time, at least Bala had to remain in the country and relinquish his passport. Okay, small blessings. Small blessings. They get, you know, they, they compound though, like right now. <gasps> yes. Later, as the detective was flipping through Bala's passport, he noticed stamps from Japan, South Korea, and the United States. And he remembered that the website of the television show 997 had recorded page views from all of those countries, a fact that had initially baffled investigators. Why would anyone so far away be interested in a local Polish murder? Roblewski went back and compared the periods when Bala was in each country with the timing of the page views. And guess the fuck what? The dates fucking matched. Proof that Bala was keeping tabs on Darius's case. Yes! Yes. 
that is so weird and random and such a weird way to catch somebody. And I'm so here for this. That is this entire case. It's this entire case. That's bananas, dude. That's so fucking crazy. What? Girl. However, after Bala was released from police custody, he went on the offensive, reiterating his claims of police brutality and claiming that he was being persecuted for his art, which was a work of fiction and nothing more. And here's the thing. The public sided with Bala. (gasps) No! Okay, but here's the thing. This is what we got to keep in mind. Context is everything, right? (sighs) They are They are less than 20 years outside of communism. Yeah. So the memories of, you know, communism where artists are being targeted and persecuted for their art is still very, very fresh in everyone's mind. I think art's a generous term. I mean, 10,000 fucking percent. Absolutely. But this was, this is a fucking thing that happens in communism. Like artists are the one, are the first ones to fucking go. Yeah. And intellectuals, yeah. So it's it's not that outrageous to say because, like, this happened to people we knew less than 20 fucking years ago. Yeah, that's still fresh in their minds. It's very fresh, yeah. That's unfortunate. And he fucking knows that. Mm. This piece of shit. This motherfucker. And the public outrage was enough that police authorities launched an internal investigation into Bala's act. Mm-hmm. Damn. Uh-huh. Okay. Shit. Yeah into Bala's allegations of abuse and mistreatment. In early 2006, after months of probing, the investigators declared that they had found no corroborating evidence, insisting that Bala's tale was just another one of his many fabrications. Shocker. I mean, but even after all of this horseshit and years of investigating the case, Roblepsky still remained undeterred. He knew that Bala was responsible for Darius's murder. And he kept rereading Amok, looking for clues, and the detective remained haunted by one riddle in the novel, which he believed was crucial to solving the case. A character asked Chris, quote, who was the one-eyed man among the blind? End quote. The phrase originates from a Dutch theologian who said, quote, in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. End quote. And Vroblevsky wondered, who was the one-eyed man in Amok, and who were the blind men? In the novel's last line, Chris suddenly claims that he solved the riddle, explaining, quote, this was the one killed by blind jealousy, end quote. But given that the sentence had no context and basically came out of nowhere, it made little sense to the detective. And if we're being honest, probably anyone else who read this piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. But Roblevsky combed the novel in search of a motive. There was a theory that Bala had murdered Darius after beginning a homosexual affair with him because in the novel, Chris's closest friend confesses that he's gay. And Chris says that part of him wanted to, quote, strangle him with a rope, end quote, and, quote, chop a hole in a frozen river and dump him there, end quote, which gross fuck you, whatever. And overreaction. That's not the response anyone should have to that. Overreaction. Yeah. Then don't have sex with him. How about that? Yeah. Whatever. Or if, like, I don't support this, but if you don't want to be his friend anymore because of that, like, that's your fucking prerogative, bro. Cool. He doesn't have to be your friend. Yeah. All right. Leave him alone. Let him live his wonderful gay life without you. Fuck off. Exactly. However, no evidence was found to suggest that Bala was gay. Another theory was that the murder was the culmination of Bala's twisted philosophy, that he was a postmodern version, as we mentioned earlier, of Leopold and Loeb, the Ubermensch and all of that fucking horseshit. Yep. 
But after years of working on the case, Wroblewski decided to go back to square one and re-interview Bala's closest friends and family. Many of those interrogated spoke of Bala in a positive light, calling him a, quote, bright, interesting man, end quote, even if he may have been a tortured soul with a drinking problem. However, it was in this second round of interrogations that people finally started spilling the tea and a darker picture of Bala's life began to emerge. Tell me everything. Guys, I'm so upset that you guys are not seeing Amy's face for this. She's like so here for all this shit. I love it. I am, again, on the edge of my fucking seat. Is this, no one has made this story into a show. This is like prime, like Mindhunter level shit right now. Girl, so (gasps) it was up, it was made into a movie that only was released in Poland in like 2016. America, get on this. Get on this. Yes. David Fincher, where the fuck are you? Let's go. Right? What are you doing right now? This is why we have Todd Robbins. Also, it, they spend 10 minutes on on this case. Like, I, I'm 14 pages in. So clearly, like, n- all of this shit is not in it. Yes. Because there's just no time. But Todd Robbins knows what the fuck's up. That's why it's, it's in his show. He's the best. So 1999 and 2000, which was the time period in which Bala's business and marriage collapsed and Darius was murdered, Bala was said to exhibit especially troubling behavior. The family's babysitter described him as increasingly drunk and out of control. She said he constantly berated his wife, Stasia, shouting at her that, quote, she slept around and cheated on him, end quote, which is always rich for the person who's cheating. Projection much? Fuck you. Yeah, that's fucking you, dude. Pot? Kettle? Hi. Yeah, and also one of his friends said that he would get, like, blackout and then, like, just whip out his dick and, like, want to whip out his dick at people. Like, just... Problematic. Don't do that. Very problematic. Just don't. It shouldn't have to be said. Yet here we are. That's a big red dick flag. You shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our entire podcast is based on it shouldn't have to be said, but here we are. <laughs> but it, it, what we're saying it anyway, somehow. Yeah. Somehow we're here. <laughs> That's accurate. According to several people, after Bala and Stasia separated in 2000, he remained extremely possessive of her. A friend who called Bala an, quote, authoritarian type, end quote, said of him, quote, he continuously controlled Stasia and checked her phones, end quote. At a New Year's Eve party in 2000, just weeks after Darius's body was found, Bala and Stasia were out together, and Bala decided that the bartender was hitting on Stasia, and as one witness put it, quote, went crazy, end quote. Bala screamed that he would take care of the bartender, and that he had, quote, already dealt with such a guy, end quote. It took five people to restrain him. What? Yeah. This guy went full on fucking bananas. Dude, berserker. Jesus. But that being said, Stasia and her friends dismissed the behavior as just another drunken outburst. Can you imagine? Don't dismiss what is this that behavior. Shit? But what is the shit that she's put up with that this is normal? Yeah, she's like, oh, it's just a Tuesday. It's He'll sleep it off. It's fine. Yes. Like, I can only imagine her being like, oh, fuck, like, whatever. It's fine. I'm sorry. I'll get this round. Like, I'm sorry. He does this sometimes. Like, how often this kind of crazy shit would happen? Fuck. Like, Jesus. While Vroblepsky was making the rounds with the interview— other members of the squad stepped up their efforts to trace the two suspicious telephone calls that had been made to Darius's office and the cell phone on the day he disappeared. And Ryblepsky's team discovered even more incriminating information. While reviewing the phone evidence yet again, it was discovered that the mysterious payphone calls that had been made to Darius's office and cell phone on the day he went missing 
had been made with a phone card. Each of these phone cards were encoded with a unique number that pinged the phone company any time it was used. Using this info, the communications expert was able to determine the rest of the call history tied to this particular phone card. Over a three-month period, 32 calls had been made using that phone card. Those calls included calls to Bala's parents, his girlfriend, his friends, and a business associate. Bro, throw it out and get a new card. What the fuck is wrong with you? Seriously? Ugh. I mean, high on his own supply. Thank God. Or he actually might have gotten away with this shit. He absolutely would have. I am so happy he fucked up so many times. And this guy was like relentless in pursuing this crime. With jealousy now a likely motive for the crime, the only thing missing was a solid link between Bala and the victim. And that finally, because granted, they don't, they're I like, was like, is there still not a solid link? Like, it's so fucking obvious. No, because they're like, how the fuck do these people know each other? Okay. Oh my God. You know, it's like, unless it's like a super random thing, but again, the brutality of the crime says this is a deeply personal thing. Mm-hmm. So, but like no one, no one is placing that they know each other. Oh, so crazy. Okay. Dude, again, this is almost an entirely circumstantial case. This is crazy. But this solid link finally came when the detective spoke with one of Stasia's friends. The friend told the detective that in the summer of 2000, she had gone with Stasia to a nightclub called Crazy Horse. And at the time, Stasia was still getting over her separation from Bala and needed a fun girls' night out. At some point, she had met a man with long, dark hair and blue eyes who was going through his own marital troubles. His name? Darius Yanishevsky. The two talked for a while and exchanged numbers before parting ways. And with all this evidence now in hand, Rublevsky decided that it was time to approach Stasia directly. And while he had tried before, she had completely refused to cooperate with the investigation. Rublevsky this time brought a copy of a muck with him to the interview with Stasia. Apparently, she had never read it since it wasn't... Because here's the thing. I was going to say, did she not read this? Yeah. It was released almost three years after they got divorced. Okay. And why are you going to go pick up your ex-husband's fucking book that he wrote? Who was, for all intents and purposes, a fucking dick. Yeah, no. I'd be like, fuck this guy. I'm not buying a copy of his book. Fuck him. Yeah, exactly. According to Polish authorities, Stasia examined passages involving Chris's wife, Sonia, and was so disturbed by the character's similarities to her and by the similarities between Bala's main character and his actions in real life that she finally agreed to talk. <gasps> yes, Tessia. Let's do this. Yes. She confirmed that, yes, she had met Darius at the nightclub and that the two had arranged to go out on a date the following week. They went out and checked into a motel. But before, which girl, like, work. That's a great date, apparently. It went well, I think. So, but here's the thing. Before anything happened, she said that Darius admitted that he was still married and she left. Stacy said, quote, since I know what it's like to be a wife whose husband betrays her, I didn't want to do that to another woman, end quote. Stasia is clearly like a legit person. Yeah, respect. All right. Exactly. Darius and his wife got back together shortly thereafter, and he and Stasia never went out again together. Yeah, this was literally like a one and done. Oh my God, and nothing even happened. And this poor man ended up murdered. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Several weeks after her date with Darius, however, Stasia said that Bala showed up at her place in a drunken rage, demanding that she admit to having an affair with Darius. 
he broke down the front door and struck her. Jesus, fuck. Girl, they're not even fucking together. Right? And you were cheating on me the whole time. Like, go fuck one of your other chicks if you don't want to be with me anymore. What? Bala screamed that he had hired a private detective and knew everything. Girl. Bro, why do you even give a shit? It's the control thing. It's so, yeah, oh no. I know there's no logic behind those. It's so infuriating. Yes, because we are normal people and we're like, just move on. But it's like, this is not a love thing. This is a control thing. Yep. That he had visited Darius's office and had described to Stasia what it looked like and that he knew which hotel that they had gone to and even which room number they had checked into. So Roblevsky's like, Hey, girl, what the fuck? Uh, Why didn't you tell any of us this when we interviewed you literally years ago? And she said that the main reason she had never come forwards was that after Darius disappeared, she confronted Bala and asked him if he had anything to do with his disappearance, and he denied any and all involvement. That, and she didn't believe her ex-husband was capable of murder. Okay. I mean, also, if he's just waxing poetic all the time, like, just bullshit, you're like, whatever. Here's the thing. If this podcast has taught me anything, it's that anyone is capable of fucking doing that. 10,000 fucking percent. Straight up. It do- there doesn't really seem to be a rhyme or reason. Yeah. People are going worst. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. This new piece of information also gave clarity to the line the detective had been trying to decode from the book. Quote, this was the one killed by blind jealousy. End quote. This was his confession. Uh, Christian Bala had killed Darius Yanishevsky in a blind, jealous rage. Bala's home was raided, and he was placed under arrest. On February 22nd, 2007, more than six years after Darius Yanishevsky was murdered, Christian Bala's trial began, and the Polish press had a fucking field day. A front-page article of a weekly Polish newspaper read, quote, Killing doesn't make much of an impression in the 21st century, but allegedly killing and then writing about it in a novel is front page news, end quote. I mean, yeah. Yeah, that'll fucking do it. And because people are trash, the public ran out in droves to purchase a muck. It was literally my next thought. I was like, I bet everyone fucking bought the book too. God damn it. Okay. Yeah. So they could see the clues for themselves with this piece of literary trash selling out in nearly every bookstore that carried it. Everyone else was finally seeing what Detective Roblevsky had seen from the jump. The prosecution alleged that Bala, like his alter ego Chris, was a depraved hedonist who, unbound by any sense of morality, had murdered someone in a fit of jealous rage. A psychologist testified that, quote, every author puts some part of his personality into his artistic creation, end quote, and that Chris and the defendant shared, quote, sadistic qualities, end quote. And for those who were looking for a spectacle, this trial did not disappoint. As part of Poland's justice system, defendants are allowed to question witnesses directly. And Bala made full use of this opportunity during his trial, because of course he fucking did. Yeah. It's this bullshit that he thinks he's smarter than everyone. He can outsmart everyone and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, of course. He's like, oh, God. And Bala noted that no one had seen him kidnap Darius Yanishevsky or kill him or dump his body. Bala said, quote, I'd like to say that I never met Darius, and there is not a single witness who would confirm that I did so, end quote. Bro, we have the fucking receipts. Girl. So while Christian Bala was busy sucking his own dick at <laughs> how much smarter he was than everyone else. I love you, dude. I fucking love you so much. <laughs> 
<laughs> I love you. Did I write it? Also, that's not even off the cuff. I was like, fuck this guy. <laughs> the prosecution dropped even more evidence of Bala's disturbing behavior, like Bala's laptop, which had been found during the raid, on which they found a password-protected file on his computer that could be opened with a password. What do you think the password of this fucking, this, this fucking thing is? Oh, no. I'm going to start blind something? What was it? A muck. Oh my god! What? Yes, it's he thinks he thinks he's so fucking clever. Like literally, you could have figured out in three fucking things. I literally didn't guess that because I was like, "That's too obvious." It has to be a reference from the book. It can't be the book itself. That's so obvious. Oh god! No, it's a muck because of course it is. Of course, the file contained graphic descriptions of Bala's encounters with more than seventy women, including his wife where he used language extremely similar to that of the main character of his novel. In another, more cryptic document on his laptop, authorities found evidence that seemed to suggest that Bala was plotting a second murder, that of Stasia's new boyfriend, Harry. Fuck. Dude, this is years that they've been divorced. Move on. Crazy. Bala had been collecting information on Harry, writing, quote, single, 34 years old, his mom died when he was eight, apparently works at the railway company, probably as a train driver, but I'm not sure, end quote. After Bala learned that Harry visited an internet chat room, Bala posted a message at that site under an assumed name saying, quote, sorry to bother you, but I'm looking for Harry. Does anyone know him from Chonjnau? Sorry, I have no idea how to pronounce that, that town. Can you imagine that? No, what? And while Bala never took the stand, the defense maintained that this was all about a work of fiction that had been misinterpreted and that Bala was innocent of any crime. In early September, the case went to the jury, and Christian Bala was found guilty and convicted of the murder of Darius Januszewski and sentenced to 25 years in prison, which, what the fuck, Poland? Not enough. Not nearly enough. Not enough. No. A few weeks later, Bala filed an appeal and was granted a retrial. What? Girl. Dude, they had evidence that he was, like, planning another murder. What is wrong with this situation? So he gets granted a retrial on the basis that there were still gaps in the logical chain of evidence in the case. Apparently that's important in Poland. For instance, one medical examiner said that Darius had drowned, while another one insisted that he had died via strangulation. And even the judge herself had admitted that she was not sure if Bala had carried out the crime on his own or with an accomplice. But don't worry, Bala was retried a year later and once again found guilty. So, fuck this guy. Oh, thank God. Okay. I was like, if this motherfucker got off, I'm not happy. No. And he continues to deny any involvement in Darius Januszewski's murder. So, the million-dollar question is, why would someone commit a murder that, for all intents and purposes, was perfect, got away with it? Yeah. And then, three years later, write about it in a novel that would help him get caught. Hubris. <laughs> Some observers wondered if Bala had wanted to get caught or at least to unburden himself from a guilty conscience, not dissimilar to his protagonist in Amok, who speaks of doing that throughout the novel. But Roblevsky, on the other hand, who, one, was the only person who knew what the fuck time it was from the second he got the case, and two, by the time Bala went to trial, had been promoted to inspector, which, fuck yeah, get it. Yeah, you deserve that. Absolutely. He believes that Bala's greatest desire was to attain literary immortality. And he saw his crime and his writing as inseparable. And it's easy to see why. 
When David Grand flew to Poland to interview Bala for the New Yorker article, Grand wrote, quote, There's going to be a new edition coming out with an afterword about the trial and all the events that have happened, Bala told me excitedly. Other countries are interested in publishing it as well. Flipping through the pages of his own copy, he added, There's never been a book quite like this, end quote. Barf, hide your own supply, audible eye roll, fuck you. Gross, okay. The convicted murderer told The New Yorker that he was working on a sequel to Amok that would be even more extreme than his first book. While little is known about the novel, we do know the title, Delyric. Bala said, quote, it's a pun. It means lyrics as in a story or delirium, end quote. Because you get it? Because I don't know if you do, because I'm so smart and I don't know if you understand. I get it and I also hate it. So, ugh, no. I, I have strained my eyes from rolling them so much during the story, Monique. I have permanent eye strain. Literally. Fuck this guy. He's so high on his own supply and he's just obnoxious. And like, he literally got away with it. Yeah. He literally got away with it. And his, you know, his ego and his pride just couldn't, couldn't, he just needed to fucking talk about it, which is the thing you hear about all of the time in murderers, especially when they're men, they can't shut the fuck up about it. Just shut up and disappear and live your fucking life. Yep. But I'm glad you didn't. Fuck you. Yeah. Thank fuck. And that is the story of the senseless murder of Darius Yanishevsky and badass super cop Yatsik Roblatsky, a.k.a. Jack motherfucking Sparrow. Yes. David Fincher, what are you doing? Get on this. Where the fuck are you, girl? Thank you. Let's get on this. This story was amazing. Thank you. I can't handle any of it. No. And I need them to make this into a show immediately so that I can binge watch it. Please and thank you. Literally. Yeah. Fuck this guy. I mean, yeah, fuck this guy. What a, what a fucking clown. <laughs> I like have nothing else to say. I'm just like, fuck this guy. And fucking kudos on the detective. Like, fucking nailed it. Good for you for like knowing what the fuck was up and just sticking to it. Sticking to your guns. That literally he even got investigated for police brutality during this shit. Yes. And he was still like, I'm not dropping it. Like, I fucking know this is the guy. No, fuck this guy. No. Thank you so much for that story. I had not heard any of that. Me neither. Any inkling of that in any way, shape, or form. And that was riveting, genuinely. Thank you. I mean, it's fucking insane. And just the little the little nuggets and just like... <sighs> so crazy. Just shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. And don't write a fucking book about the murder you committed. Throwing it out there. It's that bullshit that he just thinks he's smarter than everyone else. Like, you know, I, I did think of a lot of parallels, not a lot, but some parallels to to your story last week. Yep. That I just think that he thinks he's smarter. And also, I gave, I gave his, his pick a quick goog. For, uh, was it Gabe Watson? That's his name? That sack of shit? Yeah. Sexy. He is not girl no. at all. So to have the audacity to send that fucking car to his fucking ex-sister-in-law? Right? How fucking dare you? Right? Yeah. Gross. Super gross. And I, whatever. But he got away with it. He did get away with it, which I'm so happy this guy didn't because honestly, that's what I was preparing for the entire time. I was like, oh my God, I had a, the guy didn't get caught story last week. Now Monique is going to torture me with another, this guy didn't get caught story. And I'm just going to be so angry at the world, but... (laughs) You didn't do that. You satisfy me. I did not. In my cold, dark heart. Likewise, girl. Knowing that he got 
he got kind of what he deserved. He deserved more years, personally. Way more. But he at least was found guilty. But twists and turns. Yeah. All of them. So many twists and turns. Yeah. I love it so much. Thank you so much for that story. Sure, I got you. Um, thank you, Internet and, and Todd Robbins for the story, because I'd never heard of it. Yeah. It's like, holy shit. And thank you guys so much for listening. This is another fucking horror podcast, in case you didn't <laughs> you didn't know what you clicked on. Surprise. I'm Monique Sanchez. And I'm Amy Traden. You can find me on the gram at pinupgirlmo. You can find me at lobotomy, and that's bot period Amy. Every sixth episode, which we have one kind of coming up, we do a True Listener Tales episode where we read your personal true crazy stories. So if you have one or you just want to say hi, email us at anotherfuckinghorrorpodcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the U and fucking. As always, we're so fucking obsessed with you. Thanks for being rad as fuck. Thanks for listening. Keep it cute. Keep it creepy. Bye. Bye.